And the thing that's so hard about being an entrepreneur in so many different ways is you have to be a contrarian by very definition because the status quo isn't satisfying the need that you see. And which means that when you start to go try to tackle it, everyone's going to tell you you're an idiot. Hello, everybody. This is the Founder Hour. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we sit down with Mark Merrill, co-founder of Riot Games. You may know them as a team behind League of Legends, one of the most popular online video games of all time, with well over 100 million active players each month. Posh and I hung out with Mark to learn about a story and how he got into video games, eventually developing an obsession for it. We also talk about how Riot Games came to be, what inspired Mark and his co-founder Brandon to create League of Legends, and what goes into developing a successful video game. Aside from gaming, we also talk about entrepreneurship and innovation, how to transform industries, scaling up business, and what Mark considers his biggest weakness. Here we go. Hey everybody, you're tuning in the Founder Hour. I'm your host, Pat. Posh is here as well. And up, today guys? on the show, we have Mark Merrill. He is the co-founder of Riot Games. Uh, Mark, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. So uh, obviously, it's called the Founder Hour. And we the way we kind of like to, to dive in is uh, really get a sense of you as a person and as a human being and like where you, you know come from, uh, your background, your upbringing. Um, so I guess we can start off with, did you grow up in LA? I did. So, uh, you know, I was born and essentially raised in L.A., uh, did a brief stint in Arizona and Pennsylvania, but came back when I was six. And, uh, you know, so grew up in a suburb of L.A. called uh, Westlake Village, which is right next to Thousand Oaks. And, uh, you know, went to public elementary and then uh, went to a private high school called Chaminade, which is located in West Hills before uh, going on to the University of Southern California, uh, which is really where I met my business partner and, uh, you know, started the whole journey of what this ended up becoming Riot Games. Were you a gamer in high school? I've been a gamer my whole life. So When did uh, it start? You know, it really started, uh, my parents got an Atari for whatever reason. Uh, I guess maybe it was a cool toy or something. Because I remember playing it when I was four. And, um, you know, it, my mom loves to tell a story where I was playing a game apparently called Vanguard, which is some like spaceship piloting game. And my grandfather, you know, uh, came to check it out one time with me and I crushed him at it. <laughs> I was four and he's like, whoa, this is hilarious. Um, but apparently I was so into it that they never, that they wanted to have me not play video games cause I was spending too much time. And so when Nintendo came out, which is like the only thing I wanted on the, on the earth, my parents didn't want to get me one. And, uh, but you know, as fate would have it, that actually ended up being the grand prize for a school raffle. And I like took my two bucks that I had or three bucks, whatever it was at the time, bought, you know, two or three raffle tickets and ended up winning the grand prize. And, uh, when that happened, you know, my parents didn't really have the heart to take it away. And so, uh. It's sort of fate. So it all started from two dollars, huh? Apparently, you know. But uh, but yeah, I played lots of Nintendo games growing up. Um, you know, and really, what became my sort of main, you know, uh, gaming device over time was my personal computer. So when you know my parents got like an IBM compatible in 1987, it's like a 386, and uh, I remember thinking it was the most magical box in the history of the world. And, uh, you know, but the reason I wanted to learn how to use a computer was to play games. And so there was a, a bunch of adventure games back in the day uh, from a you know, company called Sierra uh, that would make games called Heroes Quest or Police Quest or mm -hmm. King's Quest and Space Quest. And I used to absolutely love those adventure games. Uh, but I'd have to learn how to use the computer in order to make them work because my parents didn't really know how. They had, uh, they had bought it because they thought that they were supposed to have a computer. And so I'd, you know, end up like learning how to write batch files and put it on a floppy disk that would boot up differently and, you know, adjust conventional memory, you know. You but all just of this, figured it out on your own. Like, yeah. It, was, it felt like, again, like a magic puzzle that I was yeah. learning in order to get the game work. I didn't understand how computers worked at all except to go get these programs to work. And uh, anyway, you know, so really loved, really loved playing games my whole life. What was your favorite game growing up? Oh, gosh, it really, really... The one that, like, you just, like, wouldn't want to do anything else but play, and then once you're done, you're like, I'm going to start all over and play again. I mean, too many to name, <laughs> I, uh, strangely, but, uh, you know, I mean, from, again, if I was, when I was in elementary school or whatnot, it would have been uh, Zelda, you know, or Punch-Out, you know, like, I actually, I don't know if you guys played Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, 
But like, no, okay. Well, I TKO'd Mike Tyson, which is a, <laughs> it means knocking him down in three rounds and uh, three times in one round, which is an incredibly hard thing to do. But, um, does he know about this? Well, I knocked him out in real life. I, no, yeah, I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah. No, he would, uh, he would absolutely annihilate me, but obviously, <laughs> and 99.999% of humanity. But, um, you know, I played, loved a Nintendo, uh, played a ton of Genesis, which was the next, you know, console that we ended up getting, didn't do the Super Nintendo thing. Um, but as I really entered my teen years, you know, I really started falling in love with computers, as I mentioned, and in particular, that's when online games really started, where, you know, the, the early internet became a thing. I had a 2400 baud modem uh, as part of this computer, and I'd monopolized my parents' second phone line uh, connecting to BBSs, which mm-hmm. are, what are called bulletin board systems, uh, just trying to go, again, play games. And one of my favorites, uh, again, which is essentially a text-based multi-user dungeon, imagine Dungeons & Dragons, mm-hmm. but in text-based form, on uh, you know on somebody's early version of a website that you'd connect to, and there'd be like twenty other people playing and the whole thing, but and it would describe a room and it'd be like, oh, you can head north. And it was the one I played uh, in the early '90s was called Telet Arena 5.0. Uh, but I loved Trade Wars and all those other games. And uh, then when the AOL craze started to happen, mm-hmm. you know I, that was my early foray into uh, some mischief because you know as a adolescent. Uh, you know, sometimes we can all do things we probably shouldn't do with other people's credentials and whatnot, which uh, I was guilty of doing. Uh, people, but again, I mean, people do that nowadays with Netflix and HBO and all that. Yeah, kind of the motivation was again yeah. always to play games because right. uh, you know, and it was sort of free when that would happen. Right. I played Gemstone or, or things like that, or Neverwinter Nights. Um, but uh, you know, and then when online games really started to take off with the creation of you know massive multiplayer online games, you know, uh, when I was sort of in late high school, college, etc. Ultima Online, then subsequently EverQuest, and then World of Warcraft uh, were really a bunch of titles that I was mm. obsessed with. But it should have been a lifelong passion. Uh, but the, the strange thing is, like, a bunch of my friends oftentimes didn't even know how hardcore I was in the games because I played lots of sports. You know, I'm a Boy Scout who became an Eagle Scout. Uh, you know, I always did lots of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think sort of I'm very appreciative of my parents for sort of forcing me to, uh, to, to be somewhat well-rounded. Because uh, it's really helped me throughout my were life. Were they ever mad that you were constantly just playing video games, though? Because oh, I remember yeah. my parents would just probably yeah, yell yeah, at yeah. me all the time. Yeah, they were, They would get upset. Uh, and then subsequently in college, when I ended up playing too much, and, you know, they'd come visit me or something, and I'd be all pale. And, uh, you know, because at one point in college, I was literally probably playing between 80 to 100 hours a week my junior wow. year. And that was far too much. And, you know, even I knew it. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is something that's bad because, you know, I'd barely go to class and... Um, yeah, but I always managed to still get sufficient grades, but I didn't apply myself as, right. as well as I, you know, think I could have. Um, and you know, but I think I think lots of people do that. But for anybody listening to this, don't do that. School's really important. <laughs> Growing up, I know a lot of kids have this dream of being something. I wanted to be a firefighter until like eighth grade, and then I wanted to be a doctor. Um, my son it, is all about firefighters. Is he a, it's, and I mean, I always say it all the time. I mean, like in everything that, you know, Pat and I do, we're, we are firefighters. Like most of our days spent putting out just like <laughs> fires and problems yeah. and solving stuff. So I guess it's a good, it's a good dream to have as a kid, yep. um, you know, to solve problems and to help others. Uh, but be, besides being a passion, was there something you wanted to do? Like, did you know that you want to get into this industry? You know, it's interesting. I always looked at games as a fantasy career, like you know, I didn't know anything about the right. career path in the games. It didn't seem realistic. Uh, you know, my dad was, you know, who's, you know, sort of an important role model in my life. Uh, you know, he grew up on a farm in Camarillo, mm-hmm. you know, a very self-made guy. I went to junior college and then, you know, ended up going to UC, uh, UC Santa Barbara and sort of climbing his way up the corporate ladder in the residential real estate world. Um, but I always really admired him and his perspective around business and the fact that he you know, balanced work and family pretty well. And uh, so I, you know, so I always thought, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go be a professional, kind of like my dad, you know, either a business guy or I'm going to, you know, I didn't know what type of business I'd go into, you know, or maybe I'd go get a law degree, you know, and then mm-hmm. go do that too. And I was always sort of pursuing, maybe I'd go the military path and then law and maybe politics because I'm sort of passionate about civic, you know, responsibility and, and uh, not passionate about government, but I am passionate about community. <laughs> right. uh, and, you know, I think there's something just important about how we as humans share this sort of sacred space that we all Mm -hmm. live in together. Um, So that's always had some appeal to me. But but I also, you know, I guess I had sort of ambition to to go do something relevant in the business world. And games, despite it being my super hardcore passion, 
again, I didn't have a great frame of reference or knowledge for what it was to, to get in the industry uh, really until college. And that's really when I started thinking about, like, what would my career be? Um, but in, at, in school, I was a liberal arts guy, too, because mm-hmm. I, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, I'm going to definitely go get either my law degree or my MBA. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to be my one time in life that I have a chance to be sort of academic and study lots of things. So I was undecided for two years because I have tons of interests. And so I was taking stuff from physics classes to math classes to business classes to uh, philosophy classes and then psychology and political science classes and international relations classes, things like that. And um, so I ended up deciding to uh, major in political science and minor in psychology. And I was really, part of the reason is because I was fascinated about human motivation. Right. And I was sort of curious, about, like, well, why do people do what they do? And, and thought about uh, sort of political science from an, a macro ideological perspective around what's happening in society that drives movements of people to go do things. Uh, you know, like a big question that was curious to me, it was like, hey, in World War II, right, when fascism became a thing in Germany, like how did millions of people participate in these horrible atrocities? Like mm-hmm. where does that come from? And then psychology more from a, a micro level mm-hmm. uh, about like, hey, well, why, you know, what is love and why would somebody want to go commit murder? And like, what, you know, what's abnormal psychology and psychosis? And, and uh, interesting enough, that ended up being pretty relevant for, ba- you know, both games and for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, companies or building riot. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, my academic career uh, didn't really have anything to do with my subsequent career, or at least directly. And while I kind of realized that when I was getting closer to graduation, I'm like, wow, I need to get my act in order. Yeah. Uh, what should I go do? And so I ended up getting an internship in finance. I'm like, I need to go check the, the quant box, right. you know, to... I mean, as a, I mean, just like from a business student perspective at yeah. USC, like that's like the tra- trajectory is like you go to finance. Right. Like you go to either investment banking or right. like consulting. Especially or in the late like, 90s, early 2000s, right? Yeah, Finance even now, was even absolutely now. blowing up. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, a lot of my peers were doing that. Um, and so, you know, and, and they were doing sophisticated modeling and, you know, working at interesting companies with big brands and, and all that. And a lot of that was exciting. Uh, and so I was able to work at, at Merrill Lynch for a year, uh, my senior year. Any relation there? No, ironically. <laughs> uh, but spelled the same way. And what's funny is actually my dad... Uh, ran Prudential, or sorry, Merrill Lynch Realty yeah. in Pennsylvania when we were there briefly. <laughs> no association. No association whatsoever, but he, we'd go to parties, or he'd go to parties. I was I was five at the time, and uh, he'd be like, I knew your grandfather, and he'd be like, really? That's great. You know, but clearly, uh, they didn't. And um, and people at SC sometimes thought that. That's you know, funny. And so like, of course you work at Merrill sure Lynch. you use it to your advantage. No, I mean... Maybe once or twice? I mean, he was yeah, in his bedroom playing video games. I don't think anybody was really... Yeah, yeah. True. exactly. Um but so I ended up going to Merrill Lynch, uh, and then the market sort of exploded, uh, and then I worked for U.S. Bank in commercial lending, and then I went to a company called Advanced Star Communications, which operated uh, B2B trade shows and published B2B magazines. Um, and uh, But part of my early part of my career, I was really thinking, how do I just develop my skill set? And But on the side, you know, with my now business partner, Brandon Beck, we would always be talking about games, and we'd go to E3, which is just the road mm-hmm. from USC at the Electronic Entertainment Expo, and we'd always be in and around games. And it was some of those antics, which actually was the catalyst, which ended up uh, being how we got into Riot. So, Mark, I know a lot of you know friends of ours and just colleagues that that are in that corporate kind of world right now. They're three, four, five years removed from college. A lot of them, from what we've understood, don't really know what they want to do with the rest of their lives. They just yeah. had to do something, and so they went corporate, or that's just where they found a job. Mm-hmm. And we hear complaints all the time, ah, like you know, I don't like what I'm doing. I want to be doing something more, you know. What should those folks be doing, or you know, what did you do that perhaps they can take away, you know, from that and you know relate to? Yeah, well, I can very much relate to that perspective. So, uh, and one of the things that was really frustrating for me, in particular, in my early part of my career, when I was at U.S. Bank I've, in the commercial lending, I felt incredibly underutilized. Uh, like as an example, after my first month when I was an analyst, I remember going to my boss and being like, "Hey, like I kind of got this now. Like I've, I've sort of learned the software and I'm entering all the stuff to support commercial lenders. Like, how else can I help? What else can I do?" She's like, "What do you mean?" And I'm like, what? Well, isn't there any other way that I can add value? And she's like, no, this is what you do. And I was just like, oh, you know, and that was a pretty terrifying thing for me because, again, I like doing lots of stuff. And I need, I found out over time that I really need challenge in order to become my best self. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, so I can relate to the frustration that many people feel in that regard. Um, but I think what was helpful was I stuck it out and I was – no, I sort of knew in my heart of hearts that all of this was temporary, and so I was focused on 
how do I maximize the value of the time that I'm here? So how do I learn? How do I build relationships? Um, at US Bank, as an example, I ended up pitching uh, the creation of this like mini trial management training program, uh, which I got to prototype myself. And so they actually started doing some rotations for me. I got to go spend three months in the asset-based lending division, and I then went to do some auditing, and, right. which is really cool because I was in a warehouse counting random inventory. You know, here's, you know, Skew number six thousand four hundred ninety-four, and yes, there's twenty screws is where it should be, but that was that was still cool, um, and so uh, you know, so I'd recommend that people think about how to how to learn. Never burn a bridge ever, right? Show gratitude for for your employers, right? Because you never know when things can come around mm-hmm. to help you in the future. And I've got a lot of stories like that. Um, and but then I was really when when opportunities started to arise you know, that aligned with my passion also. And I started to really ask myself, well, where do I want to go? What mm-hmm. is important? Um, you know, I think it's incredibly important to prepare yourself to take advantage of those opportunities. Mm-hmm. But w- I think one of the hardest things people do is figure out what they actually want. Right. And, and that's important. But don't be idle. Do stuff. And if you know you want to go somewhere, even if you're doing the, the nights and weekends thing or you're doing a daytime job or something that isn't what you ultimately want to do, find ways to build your story that'll help you and build your experience and perspective that'll help you when you get the opportunities in and around where you really want to go. So we give advice to people who want to get into games all the time. As an example, it's like get involved in the community, play games, make games. doesn't matter if they're board games, you know, write software programs, like do something. If, you, if you're passionate about esports, you know, start volunteering to support different community projects, right? Like build your resume because you're going to build your experience because you're going to learn so much mm-hmm. by jumping with both feet. You said something that I want to kind of delve a little deeper into because I know that, again, like a lot of our audience is like, Posh, you guys got to talk about like the challenges. Like we, we, we yeah. don't want to talk about the victories anymore. We'll, and we'll still talk about those. But what was, and you mentioned this, what was something that you wanted? Like, I mean, it's not that easy to find out what you want or what you're passionate about or what you want to end up doing. What did you want to do? Like when you're in those, you know, four or five years at, you know, U.S. Bank and Merrill Lynch, what is it that Mark wants to do? Yeah. Yeah. So I really didn't know. Right. And um, I had and, and part of the challenge that I personally felt that maybe a lot of people can relate to was I feel like I had a lot of interest. So I could see myself in various different life paths. One path, you know, would have potentially have been a military path. And I, I literally uh, I even I took a I like went to the recruiting office. You know, this is probably 2003 took the test, you know, the written test, was like ready to go and sign the paperwork. And um, and part of that was coming from a place where I just wanted to kick my own ass because I felt underutilized. And I'm like, hey, at least in the military, I know it's going to be a crazy challenge. And so, you know, simply even going through that, I'm like, but before I really commit my whole life, I'm like I should really go see what else is out there, et cetera. Right. And, um, you know, but, I, but through some of that struggle, you know, it, it made me really reflect on what do I need and I knew I needed stuff that was going to be hard. That was really going to push me. Uh, and so I actively sought that out. So, you know, I think if anybody's trying to figure out what they want to do, um, one question also is, well, what do you do for fun? What do you, what do you love to do? What's, your, what's a hobby? Right? And oftentimes there may be opportunities to create a career out of what you love to do every day. Um, because, you know, as an example now, I'm, just, I'm in the fortune position where uh, I very much have a labor of love. The stuff... Half the stuff I would do for my job now, I would do out of passion anyway. And so it's, you know, there's the whole adage. I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because I feel like, um, you love, you know? yeah, at any moment you can really look at like what you love to do. And sometimes what you love to do doesn't translate to, you know, making enough money to sustain yourself or whatever. And I think back right. then a good example, like in your case would be um, like, I remember how it was when I was a kid and my parents, if I played video games too, it's like it's kind of that stigma of like you're wasting your time because right. there isn't like a really lucrative business around this. Like there's the big guys that are making these video games and then there's like you who's playing them. But right. um, unless you're like a video game developer, which I don't even think was like a big, like a lot of schools like didn't have programs for that back in the day either. So well, and that's exactly how I saw it. I'm right. like, I'm not an engineer. I'm not going to go be a designer. Right. I'm not going to go, you know, draw, you know, be an artist or whatnot. So what can I even do? But I wanted to be on the creative side as I thought about it rather than the publishing side. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my background would have been more of a fit for the business slash publishing side. Then I'm like, if I'm going to get into finance, you know, selling SKUs to Best Buy, even if it's Madden, yeah. you know, may as well be at Procter & Gamble. Yeah. You, know, it's not, you know, so, uh, 
you know, so yeah, that's that's one of the reasons that I sort of talked myself out of you know starting a career in games right. right out of school. Like, also. like, what are your like? What would you? I guess what advice would you give even to yourself back then? Would be like you know just because this isn't doesn't seem like the most appealing industry to go into from like a business perspective, um, like as in for yourself, right? Um, what, like, why should you stick around and do it? Even though you, you like it, I'm sure there's other people that like it. Yeah. Um, wh- like, what would you tell yourself? Well, the fortunate thing, you know, at least in my case, where my passion happened to be a fast-growing industry that has continued to become more and more massive, you know, in the case of the game business, which I think is you know, north of $100 billion globally in revenue now uh, and growing, you know, at still double-digit growth rates. Um, you know, so, so there is opportunity. And the thing that's also interesting about the game business, though, is just like any, you know, really sexy industry from like fashion or film or something like that for a lot of people, there's a lot of people that also want to get into it, which mm-hmm. often can mean it's hard to break into. But then there's a real premium on experience. So the comp curve, you know, sort of flat, 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 flat until you have maybe five years experience and then it starts to ramp exponentially uh, because there's more demand for great professionals than oftentimes there is supply. And so, um, so I think one question for people, you know, is to try to evaluate and understand the industry for what their passion is, like where are opportunities, but also don't necessarily be totally discouraged by whatever exists currently. Think about what the potential could be, because as an example, if you did a quote market sizing analysis for, you know, transportation, you know, that you pay for pre Uber, you know, the taxi market was a third of what the actual opportunity that, you know, Uber now Lyft and various other ride sharing companies have as they've grown the market because they've delivered a better experience to, uh, you know, to, you know, and filled more needs. So, um, you know, and as distribution becomes more and more commoditized, you know, and like you can sell stuff on Amazon, there's great mm-hmm. websites like Etsy, you know, depending on whatever it is you do, if you create unique crafts or you like to import goods from, you know, or you're fascinated by furniture from Africa, whatever your niche is, one of the beautiful things about the internet is it makes every inefficient market more efficient. And so if you're passionate about a niche, there's oftentimes ways to go carve out a niche and to start to, you know, build a business oftentimes. So it's almost like that's your opportunity right there is to really like push the envelope and like really just transform industries because, because you love it, because there's other people that love it. There must be something there just because you can't make money off of it today. Especially if you as the end user feel the need or some pain or some problem that you can deeply relate to that is frustrating for you. You're like, oh, I wish there was X. Or I yeah. wish it would be done like this. Well, that is actually opportunity right there. You know, my wife uh, started a, a clothing company. She runs a company called Lunia, which is you know, based here in Santa Monica. And her tagline is sleepwear for the modern woman. Mm-hmm. And her whole story is very similar where she, you know, she's, this is, you know, she was getting her MBA at Anderson, and, uh, you know, she... I'm, I'm glad you didn't mention Yeah, that's the other school. Oh, yeah, well, Good you work. know, she is a, yeah, she is a Bruin. I, you know, I like to joke, it's <laughs> Cal State Westwood, uh, and then she, of course, insults me about university second choice, but, uh, you know, we have fun with that, but um, so we, uh, so long story short, she was looking in the mirror one day, and, you know, it was kind of like, wow, I'm like, I'm 28 or something, and have I hung it up already? I'm like, you know, ready to go to bed, but, like, my hair isn't done, and I haven't done my makeup and all this, and I'm wearing my husband's boxers and, and all this. And long story short, she's, it's that problem sort of related to the opportunity that she ended up capitalizing on and building a great business around, which is similar from a thesis standpoint as to sort of Lululemon uh, or the athletic uh, apparel like space prior to Lululemon, where yeah. she's like, you know, women want to look good everywhere, yeah. you know, and have stuff that is both functional and form fitting. And and so her deep ability to relate to the problem led to the innovation of how she then right. figured out how to solve the problem. And, and Riot was exactly the same way. It's like creating the, whether it's the need or just creating that category, which I think a lot of people are scared to do because it's kind of this land of the unknown. Right. But I think most of these great companies or just great innovations come out of that unknown. Like you just, yep. you don't know what you're going into, but well, and part of the you'll reason stumble upon it. That's the case. Is, and the thing that's so hard about being an entrepreneur in so many different ways is you have to be a contrarian by very definition because the status quo isn't satisfying the need that exactly. you see. And which means that when you start to go try to tackle it, everyone's going to tell you you're an idiot. You know, your family will sometimes like, really? Like, okay, you want to go work on a business plan rather than go to this movie on Saturday night? It's out of like, love. It's out of love. 
Well, they don't yeah, want to exactly. see you fail. Your friends, exactly. that, all sorts yeah. of stuff. It's like, are you really making good decisions? You know, and again, yeah. it's coming from a good place. Yeah. But the industry will laugh at you. You know, like, you know, oftentimes financiers will laugh at you. I mean, there's so many pressures and so many people that love to say no. But in our experience, the thing that helps give the conviction that it's possible isn't the market trends or the data, you know, and whatnot. You need to look at that stuff. But that's looking historically. It hasn't. It doesn't forecast what is to right. come or what will happen. Mm-hmm. The that's the science. The art, the courage that comes from the vision, the ability to empathize with a customer, with a need, with a problem. And I think that's really where a lot of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and innovation mm-hmm. comes from. So transitioning a little bit to Riot Games and you know what you guys have built here. Uh, you mentioned Brandon Beck was your uh, is your co-founder. Um, how did you meet him? So Brandon and I were, were good buddies from from USC. And, uh, you know, we, we always had a lot in common. Um, we, you know, we're sort of two guys from the, you know, L.A. area who uh, just had this shared, deeply shared passion for video games. He's the first guy that I met, uh, strangely, because a lot of my friends, you know, like that I played football with or at high school, nobody was nearly as hardcore at games as I was. So I had some gaming friends and I had my, like, D&D friends and stuff like that. Sometimes they're my brother's group of friends. But uh, none of, like, my core group of friends were as hardcore so I, until I met Brandon, and uh, so we would want a game together. We'd always want to talk about games. And one of the things that I sort of fell in love with with Brandon was his really interesting view of the world. So Brandon went to Harvard-Westlake, uh, which is a you know, big mm-hmm. private school in, in, um, in L.A. And when he was in high school, he was, he's the sort of ultimate entrepreneur. He had identified that, like, hey, high school kids and oftentimes college kids lack enough things to do. And so... I'm going to go throw big events and parties for kids that want to go do stuff. And so at like 16, he'd call up venues, rent them out, you know, and be like, I'm going to, I'm going to deliver 400 people to this party, whatnot, and, you know, what's the limit? And like he'd have booze there, of course, you know, and all this. No one would think to cart him because he was organizing the event. This sounds a lot like John Terzian, too, who actually went to Harvard Westlake probably around the same time and. Uh, probably threw the parties together. We had interviewed him, yeah. He's the co-founder of Hwood Group, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just amazing, and he'd make like fifteen grand, you know, on a party. Like, <laughs> and like at sixteen, I'd be like, "What?" Like it blew my mind. But he applied that perspective to everything, you know, like whatever the status quo was, he wouldn't assume that that was the best way of doing a thing. He'd be like, "Well, why?" Or that's stupid, or whatever. And so he'd always have friction with his teachers, and he'd have friction with lots of people around him. His parents mm-hmm. used to battle like crazy on everything, and uh, but it was such a refreshing view of the world because it also was optimistic about possibilities of what could be. And that was infectious. And so, you know, I, I really, you know, he and I uh, really complement each other in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, sort of like two particles that gain energy, you know, like uh, in like reverse magnetic polarity, you know, like when they're hanging out, we very much had that dynamic. And, um, you know, so it was just natural for us to start thinking about opportunities together. game started in 2006 yep what was one of the so i know with a lot of people that have businesses and business plans they have a big vision but you got to start somewhere yeah. you know riot games obviously we see how big it's become but where did it start like what was day one <laughs> well day one was uh was you know literally i mean it was sort of we brandon and i did like the, the nights and weekends thing mm-hmm. for about nine months prior to starting the company so we opened our first office in September, uh, September 20th of 2006. This is while you're at U.S. Bank? This is while I was at Advanced Star Communications. Oh, oh right. Yeah. Brandon was a management consultant at Bain & Company, uh, their Century City office. Mm. And we lived together in an apartment in West Hollywood. So when Brandon graduated from SC, I was like, dude, we got to live together. <laughs> and uh, I literally viewed it as an investment where right. I'm like, this dude's genius. <laughs> when I'm around him... I'm a better person. Right. Let's hang out. And like, I think he felt the same way in sort of different ways with, as it relates to me. And so uh, whenever we have the luxury of seeing each other, which wasn't that often because we we're both busy with our jobs, we'd have our back-to-back gaming rigs and we'd be playing games, whatever. <laughs> and then we'd be talking about opportunities in and around gaming. 
that was the context which ended up birthing Riot. And, um, and so when we started thinking about where the game industry was going and we were complaining about different problems we saw, we you know, essentially started to build a business plan asking ourselves the question, um, like, would this work? Like, where is the industry going? You know, if we, we have an idea, we have a thesis, like, if we could go, uh, like, would this work if we actually go achieve this thing? Can we actually attract the capital to go make it happen? And can we execute? And again, the nine months were us diligencing the opportunity, essentially, you know, putting together the plan, trying to be incredibly thorough. We were 24 and 25. Neither of us had professional software development experience, Mm -hmm. which we knew would be a massive credibility hurdle and a big gap to overcome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and we had a pretty complex pitch because we were trying, we wanted to do stuff that was new that many people, there wasn't a lot of a a proven model for. So it was going to be really hard for us to raise money. So we had to figure out how do we get our pitch down and the thesis down into this very, like this really concise elevator pitch. But then, you know, we ended up having, you know, we had a 15-page like slide deck and then 200 pages of an appendix with backup uh, because whenever we'd go meet with prospective investors and our first round was essentially a seed round, but it was a big angel round. Uh, We did like a living room tour in and around LA and, um, you know, people would be like, yeah, but what about XYZ, right? And we'd be like, oh, that's a great question. If you refer to slide 197, we can see that. <laughs> da, da, da. And they'd be like, yeah, but what about that? And we're like, oh, that. thank you for the follow-up. Yeah, on slide 126, we can see that, you know, and so what it did was it demonstrated we're thorough, we were thoughtful, we had a, we were prepared like crazy. Yeah. And, you know, we also did enough diligence where we weren't kidding ourselves, right? So it wasn't, we actually thought if these things were true, which of course were assumptions, that we could build something of value. And I think that's a really important thing also where, uh, you know, it's important to have the naive optimism where you can really believe you can do stuff that's very hard, but at the end of the day, you still have to really believe it and, uh, you know, and not delude yourself if it's not going to work or if, if there's, you know, a bunch of reasons as to why it can't. The, the thing that's ironic, though, and a little complex to explain, though, is Brandon and I also joke that if we knew how hard it would have been today, knowing what we know now, we probably wouldn't have even invested in ourselves back then. You would have like convinced yourself not to do it or something. Totally, because yeah. there are a million reasons to say no. You know, so that is a tricky space to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the it's the difficulty of both being optimistic but also realistic simultaneously. And what was the initial vision? Like, did it start with just one game, or was it like we're going to create this like? So we we wanted to build League of Legends, which we thought would be the proof point to the broader company thesis around high-quality games as a service, you know, direct to players all around the world. So, and did that sorry did that start with League of Legends? At like, was that like the idea for the concept, or was it the concept came first and then we're like the essentially what what came first was us feeling that the company the games that we loved and from the companies that we loved oftentimes weren't sufficiently being supported. So we were the type of gamers that didn't want to go play lots and lots of games and buy lots of games. We wanted to play some multiplayer games for hundreds of hours or thousands of hours and go very deep within one game. So we're like, no, 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 don't go build StarCraft II. Give us more StarCraft, right? Keep updating it. But because the package good business model at the time, you know, where where companies would sell products at retail, you know, they would essentially oftentimes would treat Best Buy or Walmart or whatnot as their primary customer not the end user. Users would you know, feel that pain and oftentimes not feel listened to or appreciated or supported. And we thought that the game company of the future would be a company that would have this direct relationship. You know, and this is the same time when you know, Netflix, Netflix versus Blockbuster, iTunes versus Tower Records, right? The whole service transition from packaged goods was happening. We thought the same thing was going to come for games. But all the best games and all the best content that was being developed in the West was built on the package good business model. Right, like the EA Sports stuff, which like every year they have a new video right. game. Like Madden you could just update it. Yeah. Madden 2013, yeah, yeah. Guitar it's Hero 1, money. Guitar yeah. Hero 2. You're like, I just want more songs. you know. And I don't want six, I don't want to pay 60 bucks for the same thing I got last year with, with a couple more features. You know? yeah. And um, so our view was, what if we have incredibly high-quality games that, you know, again, are just operated as a service? And League of Legends... We knew that as hardcore gamers, the difference between being successful and not would be the game itself has to be incredible. So we put all of our eggs into that one basket, right, which again, VCs wouldn't really like because they typically wouldn't like to invest in content. But, you know, sort of the thesis was that if we can prove this out, we can build this direct relationship, which builds a publishing business and all this and and sort of a platform that could grow over time. Uh, And of course, League of Legends has been far more successful than we ever imagined possible but our initial model uh, assumed and hoped for 20,000 simultaneous players. Uh, and, you know, we have millions uh, yeah. of, of players now, which is 
which is cool. But so, um, like, when you're thinking of League of, League of Legends and, like, you know, starting off with this one game, um, like, how do how how are you gonna like? How did you know what to build? Like, did you, as a person who was like, I know you love video games and you like you just right. knew it, but did you envision the whole game? Like, how was that process like? Yeah. So, uh, so what? So, League of Legends uh, is largely was largely inspired by a bunch of games that Brandon and I were playing at the time. So, some of our favorite games were Warcraft Three, Starcraft, uh, you know, World of Warcraft. Uh, I guess which yeah, which came out two thousand four. Um, and there was a mod of Warcraft 3. Uh, a mod is essentially a set of different rules. It's like mm-hmm. a game mode mm-hmm. of an existing game. So imagine you have a chessboard, yeah. which has pieces, and then you're like, hey, what are you going to change this to invent checkers? You know, and uh, over time, um, this mod called Dota uh, ended up becoming more popular than the, the game from game. which it derived itself. Yeah. And it was just led by community members, essentially. And, you know, with zero advertising dollars being spent was growing virally. And, you know, a lot of our whole thesis was like, this proves games as a service is a thing. And, um, you know, and that this is the, it's sort of the birth of a new genre. And, you know, League of Legends was always viewed as the, how do we, you know, elevate and improve this type of mod experience? We ended up partnering with some of the creators of the mod uh, to then, you know, really help build League of Legends. And... To you know, really differentiate it from Warcraft and from Dota itself, and um, and uh, and create the type of game that, that we see today. Uh, and again, you know, to us, it was always viewed as you know as this proof point. Uh, you know, Riot's got a lot of other games in development now that we're excited to to make some you know to finally bring to players. But one of the things that, of course, we learned as we really got our uh, you know jumped in with both feet was how hard it is to build. A game, and not just a game that's going to be great, you know, and be able to play it for millions of hours, or you know, or billions of hours, um, and sustain for a long period of time, but also an online game that you know has requires massive, you know, enterprise software. Yeah. And you know, what always fascinated me about like the older games was like it had to be perfect. Like if there were any like bugs, like you couldn't just send an over-the-air update. Like you had to right. like, recall the whole game. Like, right. Hence uh, why Gold Master yeah. was a thing. You know, lots of big QA teams, you know, beating up the games. Like, yeah, the, the versioning, uh, you know, you really had to get that final version right. Yeah. And there were obviously still bugs that people could find. But in an online game, you have the luxury of being able to patch it and update it, which, was, which is part of the whole value of the service model, yeah. which is one of the things that really helped distinguish League of Legends. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that, you know, because we were a bunch of nobodies at the time, we made the game free. And so, because we knew that nobody, you know, we didn't have a single player campaign and all that. So if we tried to go tell people, hey, we deserve your $60 up front for this game, people have been like, no way. Like, and the game didn't deserve it either. Like, some of our production values weren't there, but the game was incredibly fun. And when people would come try it because it was free, they'd stay because it was great, and they'd stay because the community experience is great, and they stayed because Riot cared deeply and built this close relationship with the community and, and were there any other, improve it over time. And were there any other games like at the time that were that same model, like free? There were a couple that were that were starting to to evolve in this particular way. Um, you know, there's you know there's lots of stories we can get into about about you know the, the different games and how things have evolved. Um, but the vast majority of content still was not being created in that way. Mm-hmm. And the only games that operated really as a service at the time were massive multiplayer online games, which typically had a subscription model. Um, and the difference between, say, World of Warcraft and League of Legends would be part of the differences between, say, Disneyland and a basketball court. So WoW would be analogous to Disneyland, you know, which is it's an incredible experience. It's this massive world. You love going in, into it. But the content needs are really large, and so you need a big development team building lots of content um, you know, to create like Pirates of the Caribbean and then Never Never Land and Tomorrowland or you know, whatever. And uh, after you go on Pirates of the Caribbean 20 times, you kind of need something new, right? Which takes a lot of time and cost to go build and deliver to players. League of Legends is like, hey, what if we can get the same type of engagement, you know, by, again, it's basketball, right? It's, it's your depth of engagement comes from other players and the interaction there. And so then that means that mechanics design and balance is incredibly important. And, uh, you know, so we had to build a lot of competency around how to do that. So you raised this initial seed fund. What is, what is that money used for? So that was to build the team uh, to start developing a prototype of the game to try to go get venture ready, uh, and then in yeah early two thousand eight, you know when we were doing a VC roadshow through two thousand seven, uh, we ended up raising our first institutional round from uh, Benchmark Capital and FirstMark, 
capital. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a lot of interesting stories about, about the development of the game and the launch of the game. So whose vision was League of Legends? I mean, th there's obviously so many things that goes into it and obviously, you know, developers help put it together. But whose was it? Was it you and Brandon coming together and saying, this is what we want it to look like? Yeah, I mean, but it's it's really game development is a team sport, in particular online game development, and so, uh, but there needs to be a clear north star and target for how things should like where you're going. Uh, but we experimented with lots of lots of different, you know, game specific changes. Like you know, for any league player that would listen to this, they'd be shocked and be like, we got rid of the minimap and we made things that were six on six and then two on two. And like, I mean, we, we played with lots of different formats trying to find the right formula. Um, and, uh, you know, which is, I think, a really important part of development and a mindset at Riot in general, you know, which is we don't assume that anything that we do is as optimal as it theoretically could be. And so it's all kind of looked at as the last known good. Mm. And you don't validate until it's in front of players and until they really attach and, and care about something and, and um, which is, of course, hard to do before you've actually launched a product. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's also why Riot only hires gamers, because we need people that can understand the difference between a great decision and a terrible decision in our business is how that decision will manifest for players. And one of the things that's been super hard about Riot as we've scaled is keeping the player in the center of all of our decision-making, uh, because you know the more surface area there is at the company, the more people there are involved, the more complexity there is, uh, you know, the more difficult it is to keep everybody aligned about what's most important and to share vision and mm -hmm. whatnot. One of the hardest things in game development oftentimes is getting the whole team to really understand and align on what the game is that you're actually even trying to create because lots of people can have their own different interpretations. So so you put this game out there and um, was it like just all of a sudden just spread people spread the word and users came or players came or how did like how did the ball get rolling and was there like a moment in early on that you kind of knew like this is going to be big? So... Uh, this did. This definitely did not have rocket ship growth. Uh, League of Legends was not Pokemon Go, you know, where you know, all <laughs> of a sudden you launch and then all of a sudden everyone is like walking around in the middle of traffic, you know, playing this thing. <laughs> we um, we were growing consistently, uh, but slowly. So the reason people would come stick around in League of Legends, or, or why how League of Legends got big, wasn't because we're good at acquiring customers or players. It was, it was because we're great at keeping them. So people would come and then they'd have a great experience, and their friends would be like, dude you got to come check out this game. I'm having such a good time. You have to come play it with me. And because it was a co-op game, so players wanted to play it with their friends. And, but the game is terrible at onboarding. It's a very hardcore game. It's like nobody's first game. Yeah. Right? It's, like, it's, it's literally analogous to, to telling somebody to come play American football with you. Mm. You know, where it's like, dude, come play American football. If you've never played football before, right. you're like, you don't know what a line of scrimmage is. You don't know what offense is or defense or special teams. You don't know, like, the mm -hmm. whole concept of plays. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's what positions are. There's right. so much complexity. So the game punches you in the face. Mm -hmm. But once you – and so the first oftentimes, like, 5 to 10 to 20 games kind of suck or can be very frustrating. And it's oftentimes only your friends that help you get over that hurdle to then find the fun. But once you start to get it, you're like, oh, my God. You know, and you, you start – you know, you start to really understand what makes it great. And then people, once you sort of get over that hump, people, you know, people stick around for years. Mm. Did you ever have time to play games when you were building this? Like, <laughs> We made time. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's one of the really tricky things about, you know, building a company is obviously in being an entrepreneur, and, you know, I'm sure everybody that is one can relate to the fact of how all-encompassing it can be. And... Yet in our business also, it's like we need to prioritize staying connected to our players. We need to play the games. We need to read forums. We need to see what they're saying. We need to play other games also because we need to, you know, we have a concept of being both widely played but also deeply played uh, because you need to understand our players' frame of reference and mm -hmm. for how things that we're going to create will be perceived by them, which is relative to not only what we do but what everyone else does. And so uh, that's a critical part of what we do. Um, you know, and then when, you know, the company's scaling and there's so much management overhead and so many different challenges and then there's technology challenges and there's financial challenges and there's human challenges. I mean, you know, it's just, it, it can be pretty overwhelming, uh, not to mention personal life stuff and you're trying to start a family and whatever, you know, mm. it's, uh, it's, a, it's a hard deal. And, you know, which is why I think it's so important for entrepreneurs to talk about those different types of challenges and the, the psychological battles that can often happen where 
sometimes you feel like you're going to take over the world and other days you're absolutely depressed and like right. how can we possibly get over this we're doomed uh, like that's a very that's a very normal part mm-hmm. of the trip. so you raise a couple rounds of funding uh, this is like in 2008 was your uh, bigger round and a few years later uh, you get you you sold the majority of the company right to um, Tencent yep uh, tell us how that came about um, yeah. What happened there? Yeah. So the so the long story was, uh, you know, because Brandon and I were first time entrepreneurs, and uh, we needed to raise a bunch of capital to build the product because the product had to really be good in order to get to market. Uh, we also originally pursued a, a parallel financing strategy or path of talking to both publishers and to VCs. We just wanted to be a developer. We're just like, hey, we're going to build games that are like games as a service. Uh, the problem was when we talked to publishers, and, you know, they would historically be the traditional funding model for content in the game business. When we're talking about games as a service, they had no idea what we were talking about. So uh, we realized we couldn't give them the keys of the kingdom because that, you know, it's for a game like League of Legends, development is a critical piece of the value chain, but it's about the holistic experience, about publishing and about service and about that direct relationship. And so we realized we needed to do that ourselves, which meant we had to build a publishing business also, which means we had to raise a lot more capital. Uh, you know, we thought it was going to take $3 million to get League of Legends to the launch. It took about 20. Uh, you know, we also ended up licensing the rights to different international territories and bringing in some international partners and all that. And all this was to build enough runway to get the market to mar- mm-hmm. product to market to try to then get to cash flow positive. Um, so this was just still League of Legends. Like, you weren't even thinking of any other games. It was all just League of Legends. Uh-huh. And, Are you the role uh, of CEO at this point? Or someone what's that? Were you the CEO at this point of the company? or So Brandon and I started, at, you know, as he as CEO and, and me as president. We were, mm-hmm. you know, but we're, you know, always 50-50 and, mm-hmm. you know, always would sort of just operate as right. a team. Uh, over time, we formalized that with a co-CEO role, and, um, you know, which is, a, which, is just, it, which is both hard and great, you know, depending right. on who you're partnered with and, and the relationship and all that. But just like any partnership, it's very much a marriage. Uh, so you have to invest in that relationship. Uh, you, know, and, you know, I could get really into right. that to the extent that that's helpful. But, um, but yeah, so we raised, you know, about $20 million. Um, and uh, what was the original question that you were asking on that? I'm sorry. I was just saying, like, uh, the fact that you sold the majority of the state oh. to... Um, yeah. So and so, what happened there was, uh, you know, as we started to grow and started to become, you know, a, a profitable business, the growth curve looked good, and you know, our VCs uh, were motivated to get a good return. You know, as as part of the business model and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, Brandon and I thought that Riot was still just getting started and whatnot, but um, that became a situation where the board collectively decided that it made sense to pursue a, a transaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were fortunate to have Tencent on our board at the time which uh, they actually were, they had a board observer seat. And they were like, are you guys crazy? Why are you selling this business? I totally think you're just getting started. To, them, to their own, like to themselves. Tell, telling us. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and, and the board. And so long story short, we ended up doing a deal with them that was more analogous to a private equity deal yeah. uh, where you know, it's really like, hey, go prove that you can go create a lot of value. Uh, and we want to support you. We're not going to have your report to VP of such and such. And, you know, they're a Chinese-based company, too, so they knew that they didn't have or, you know, the interest in mm-hmm. or capability to really manage a, you know, talent-centric game development company like, like Riot. Uh, and it's been a great relationship mm-hmm. so, because, you know, Riot's obviously grown tremendously since then, which has been great for them, great for Riot, great for Rioters, you know, but our uh, angels and VCs also got a great return originally. So, uh, you know, we've been fortunate to be able to, uh, to do right by, the, you know, our backers. Yeah, and on that no- note of like growth and and where Riot has come since then, um, I think you had a something I saw online about talking about being a leader and all that. Um, but in, I guess in this case, like you can kind of brag here is like what I, I, what makes you a good leader as someone who like started this company and over time has had to fill so many different roles and really adapt uh, to what the company needs. Um, what would you say makes makes you such a great leader and and how you've brought the company to this point? I think the the way that some other people have characterized me at times, uh, or Brand, you know, Brandon and you know, various rioters. Is uh, I tend to be a pretty emotional leader. You know, I have a lot of passion for players and for riots' values and for uh, you know, sort of the problem orientation or opportunities that we're going to try to solve, um, which I think can be helpful to align and galvanize energy and momentum towards the things that we need to go accomplish. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think something else that is a, a, is a, a trait that I think is really common among, you know, many great riot leaders is 
we fundamentally recognize that leadership is a service role. It's not about us. It's about you know our player who we're trying to serve, and as a, and as a result, you know it's our role to help elevate the performance and the capabilities of the people around us to collectively try to go achieve what we're trying to achieve. And um, you know, so when I mentioned game development is a team sport, I fundamentally believe that uh, it really takes a village and. All of our biggest inflection points for the company in terms of things that really helped us improve were people-related. Getting this great leader, you know, for engineering, getting a great leader for design, getting, you know, great people in publishing, getting, you know, great people in finance and, like, just all the different functions, you know, production roles, et cetera, and then doing the same thing over time. And then as the company started to scale, you know, helping leaders backfill themselves as fast as possible, other great people, and which is why we spend so much time as a company talking about culture and talking about our values and trying to help people not only understand them, but then believe in them to, in order to have conviction, because conviction is what's required to drive decision-making and behavior to be different from A to B. You know, if, if most companies would go through a traditional strategic planning process, whatever, if you understand some nuances of, of why Riot does the things that, that we do, the logical conclusion, of course, we would not do things the way that other companies do because, you know, we're not driven by particular budget constraints because we're trying to do the right things to play or whatever it is. It's just lots of systems that we have internally oftentimes are pretty unconventional as well, but it stems from that passion and focus to try to solve problems for the audience that we're trying to serve. And it's a really a niche audience, mm -hmm. um, which oftentimes can be a surprise, a surprising thing for people too, where we're essentially being like, look, we're literally not trying to make games for everybody. We are not. Mm -hmm. We're happy to hyper-serve a niche. And... But in order to hyper-serve that niche, you have to relate. You have to want to relate. You have to care about what, they're, what they care about. You kind of have to be one of them. It's yeah. really helpful. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not 100% required, but it is super helpful. Uh, and I can give lots of examples as to why that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, but, and oftentimes, that's tricky for people to hear. Uh, so Riot ends up often skewing young. We, get, we have lots of people that we hire from our community that love the game and want to go connect with people and deliver value and, and help shepherd this great community that we have the privilege to serve. Uh, but what makes it what's really difficult is for us to hire senior leaders because we only hire gamers that narrows our talent pool considerably. So then we need to get great at developing talent internally and developing leaders. And oftentimes every leader at Riot is in the biggest role they've ever had, you know, which, of course, means we make some mistakes, you know, both internally and with players and whatnot. And there's some friction. And, and but that can work if we are humble enough to acknowledge those mistakes and learn and again get support and help from the other great people around us and again redouble down on our mission and uh, you know that's been part of the secret sauce for riot is we learn very fast because you know we acknowledge when we uh, you know don't do something right mm -hmm. uh, and that is a critical thing that we're trying to institutionalize into the company what's something that you consider as a founder you know a weakness or a challenge that you've experienced you know ever since, you know, over a decade at this point of, you know, starting Riot Games and how have you dealt with that weakness or challenge and, you know, either turned it into a strength or said, this is my weakness, like, this is not something I'm good at, I recognize it and delegate or, you know, somehow, you know, work, work that out. Yeah, so oftentimes, in my experience, people's weaknesses are sort of a shadow of their biggest strengths. And because I tend to over-index on passion for a lot of things, that can manifest for certain individuals as like high intensity, uh, and it can actually be you know pretty intense at, at various points of time. Uh, you know, some people joke internally, it's like, oh, oh, nightmare's out, and uh, <laughs> you know, some people head for the hills when that happens. Um, and uh, and that's that's something that of course I've really needed to work on, uh, and in particular as we've scaled. You know, if I get intense or overreact to, to something internally or with players, it can it can really hurt other people and be a, and be a bad thing, and and that's something that I just absolutely cannot do. Mm. Uh, and so that's been something I've really tried to work on and get coaching for. And you know, three sixties are really important. And you know, self awareness is something that we really try to cultivate, not only personally but also as a company. And uh, that means that you know, again, we need to get tough, candid feedback from others and acknowledge when we're screwing something up. Uh, and, you know, so I've really worked on a whole bunch of things, mm -hmm. but that is one I've really struggled with and spent a lot of time on. Looking back to the Mark Merrill and his college dorm room playing video games, I mean, did you ever imagine that this is what you would be doing and at this scale? No way. Uh, it is funny. I, so, I sort of joke, 
uh, you know, when, whenever, you know, people ask me that, that, you know, if current me somehow magically traveled back in time to meet college me and like show a picture of, the, of what my future would be like, I would have, like college me would have kicked my own ass. It would have been like, no way, like stop playing with my emotions. It's impossible because <laughs> like, it, it's, it's such a absolute fantasy, uh, which is, again, something that I try to remind myself when I'm, you know, stupidly feeling sorry for myself or like overwhelmed with some of our challenges. You know, I try to get perspective and, and have gratitude for the fact that, again, I absolutely have the privilege of being part of this great organization and, and serving our players. This is real. It's not a video game. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that it's uh, it's a labor of love, you know, and, yeah. which is which is something that is a you know tremendous to be a part of. And I also think it's a testament to just the fact that some things that are meant to be great take time. You know, it's uh, I think a lot of the folks that listen to our you know podcast are, you know, in the early 20s, mid 20s. And even they might think like they haven't really accomplished much. But I think it's just important to just take a step back. And I mean, it's, it's a struggle I have to. But just to take a step back and realize, like, you have your whole life. I mean, it takes right. it takes a long time to build something that good. I mean, there's very few overnight successes. Probably, you know, I can count them on my hands. Um and you just have to be patient, especially in this generation of, you know, instant gratification. It's hard to do that. Uh, but you need to be patient and just continue doing and continue building and bettering yourself. And I think, you know, it's laughable yeah. to look back to our colleges and be like, I can't believe we are where we are. But I think that is the reason why we are where we are. If we were that intense back in college, I don't think that intensity would have continued or that passion would have been able to last for, you know, decades. So I think yeah. perhaps being in that dorm room and just, you know, being there 80, 80 to 100 hours and just playing – has led you to be, you know, way more passionate now and understand it. And all those things were, you know, and that was your own form of education. I think the best quote I ever heard was like, don't let school get in the way of your education or, right. or in the way of your learning or something like that. I'm not very good at quoting Mark, quotes. I think it's a Mark Twain quote. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, I think so. So, so I mean. Don't let school get in the way of your education. There we go. Mm -hmm. There we go. I'm um, not good at memorization. No, but I think, um, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think is paramount for anybody at Riot is actually to have, what, you know, what's called a growth mindset. So Carol Dweck wrote a book called Mindset, which I think is foundational for entrepreneurship. And it talks about two different mindsets, a fixed mindset, which is where you assume all characteristics are sort of black and white. They're fixed. They're imprinted because of your background or your genetics or whatever it is. Then there's the growth mindset, which is I'm in control of my own destiny. It's more of a internal locus of control and I can learn, I can do things, I can change, you know, lots of different aspects of myself and improve. And, you know, I think when people truly embrace the growth mindset and actively work on it, you can find that there's, you can, you can grow at a rapid pace over time where fast forward a couple of years and all of a sudden you're a pretty different person or have very different capabilities than you did a couple of years prior. And oftentimes you know, like, you know, hey, we work in a sexy industry and there's cool media and art and games and it's awesome. But the real work isn't sexy. It is one foot in front of the other, heads down, doing the business basics, leading people the right way, getting them motivated, focusing on the right problems to solve, building effective processes. You know, like just it's the it's the unsexy stuff which creates these great outcomes. And, you know, having the discipline to grind through them is really important. I, I sort of describe it as a bit of like climbing a mountain where you know, you've got your backpack on and your head's down and whatnot, and you look up periodically, you see the mountaintop where you're going, but it's one foot in front of the other. And then periodically, you may look back and be like, holy shit, you know, we've come a long way. You know, but then next thing you know, head down again and just one foot further, you've got to trudge through the snow. Like that is the experience, and it is, it is hard, and it takes grit, and it takes resilience. And so you know, I, think it's just, I think it's really important for people to get support groups and to help each other. Uh, because, you know, that it's, and it's not just for entrepreneurs. I think it's for any professional oftentimes that has a demanding job mm -hmm. or, you know, big responsibilities, or, or, especially when there's no playbook and trying to figure things out. It can be scary. Even if you're like a parent or something, I mean, like, totally. I'm, sure I'm not a father, but like as yeah. a first time father, like you're probably like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm so shocked that billions of people have done this before because it is so <laughs> incredibly hard. I'm like, why do I suck so bad? I'm like, I like want to cry. It's like 3 a.m. I haven't slept and my daughter won't shut up. Oh my God. You know, like it is. My respect for parents has, I mean, not like I didn't respect them previously, but holy shit, it is, it is the hardest thing I've done by far. And we have the luxury of having help, you know, like, right. I mean, it's just, it's, whew. and that's I, that's a whole separate, that's whole like, separate thing. And I like love my kids. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 
Well, Mark, it's been a great conversation. We know just kind of learning about the company that you've built and just the space that you're in is an, is an exciting space and esports is becoming just, just so massive. So uh, seeing the direction that you guys are headed in, I think it excites us to, you know, the fact that, you know, learning about your story and, and where you come from and where you're headed is awesome. Um, and so thank you for your time. Guys, well, thanks for having me. This is, thank this you. is, this is a blast. Thanks.